people have known what this plant does, but the benefits it shows for opioid addicts is like really positive and it's completely illegal. And, and so that's just, that, that's where it becomes weaponized. And I feel like that's a lot of what you're talking about, it's like what the British did, they were weaponizing it. If there happened to be, say, somebody addicted to opiates that is listening, what would your advice to them be? This is the Colorado Springs Psychedelic Club podcast, episode one. And today's topic is opium, the plant Papaver somniferum, and the medical derivatives and problems that we find that we have with this plant. And maybe we'll come across some solutions along the way. Okay, I'm, I'm Gabe. I'm here with Anthony, Max, and Kai, and we are in the Colorado Springs Psychedelic Club. Wouldn't everybody like to say hi? Hi, um, I'm Max. Most of what I do is chemistry. I'm trying to get positions in undergrad chemistry labs this summer, and I mostly study how these different chemicals change. My name's Anthony. Uh, I have a bachelor degree in psychology with a minor in counseling. Um, Previous to my college days, I was in the military, and I'm a combat veteran. Um, have TBIs, and part of what drew me to psychedelics was um, their their healing nature. Uh, my name is Gabe, and I'm an anthropology major at UCCS, and I have an interest in botany and ethnobotany, music, uh, and cognitive studies. And so I have found along the way that... Uh, a study of psychedelics actually blends a lot of those things together. So that's one of the reasons why I developed an interest in this. So today's subject is the opium plant. In general, a lot of people don't seem to understand this plant. When they think of morphine, heroin, uh, fentanyl, they don't often know that these things were derived from a plant. And so I decided, uh, Back in the day in Texas where I was living and I had the space and the climate to do a lot of gardening, uh, I decided that I wanted to sort of grow a lot of these plants and study them. I was employed at two Austin nurseries. One of them had a whole wall of these wildflower seeds and during the spring people would come in and buy them and so we were constantly sort of restocking them when we got new shipments. And uh, there were a variety of poppies, Iceland poppies, California poppies, I noticed these Hungarian blues, which were labeled Papaver somniferum. And of course, I knew in my head that that was the legendary opium poppy. Uh, and it struck me as odd that these seeds were being sold in this nursery. Um, and so I did some research on it, and it turns out that gardeners grow opium poppies in their gardens and usually don't even think anything of it. They usually don't even know that they are growing opium poppies. Uh, they might be known only by their common name. And so as I did my research and found that I could incorporate this plant into my pantheon of ethnobotanicals in my garden, uh, I threw some seeds out in the fall uh, and they overwintered and they sprouted actually early winter. They grew through a one inch sheet of ice from a winter storm that we got in central Texas. And uh, in the spring they flowered and they were stunningly beautiful plants and they fit fit in perfectly. The Hungarian blue color fit in with the purples and blues and pinks and yellows that were all coming out at the time. And I thought, wow, this is 
a great plant. This is one that I need to grow every year. I should harvest the seeds like I do, did with all my plants. And, um, you know, I did some more research, of course, and turns out that this is, you know, opium is a Schedule II narcotic. And uh, if, if actually you're growing this plant with the intention to extract it for its medical use, or to use it as a drug or to distribute it as a drug, then you're committing a felony. So it's a really fine line between these two things. Um, and so my gardening exploration of it kind of came and went, but uh, you know, I got to see this plant grow. Um, it looks like lettuce. It's very surprisingly like lettuce. And in my research, I found that many people around the world actually ate it as lettuce. Yeah, you just throw the seeds out and you're farming. And when they're young, you, you have edible leaves that you just pluck and eat as you need them. And so in the course of eating them, you would eat the weaker ones and let the bigger ones grow because they're the ones that are gonna put, produce the bigger bloom potentially and produce the bigger seed pot. So of course, there's a, after the seed blooms, there's a very short window of time when this uh, legendary seed pod blooms. And um, in this window of time, if you wanted access to this sap, which people have had access to for many thousands of years, there are various ways to do that. It, it does just grow on the end of this plant. Uh, but then after that window, the seed pod starts to harden. And the end product is you get a nice rattle of seeds inside of a woody seed pod. And then those seeds can be pressed for oil. They can be eaten as food. Those seeds could be soaked and used as a narcotic tea, which has been done in some cultures. You could also press that seed potentially into a flower. So that, uh, oh, and even if you're not gonna consume it, if you have, say, domesticated cattle, that plant represents a food source for the cattle. And so here's this one plant that seems to have all of these uses in addition to its quote-unquote narcotic properties. Any questions? I, I thought it was interesting that you mentioned that it was like being eaten as a salad. And then at the same time, we, we use poppy seeds really often in salads and, and just stuff like that. And so I wonder if like somebody connected that long, long ago. It's like, oh, well, not only do we have this like spinach-like something that we can eat, we also can throw these seeds on top for flavoring and effect. Oh, sure. And I, I don't know, that just made me think about, you know, the way we eat salads today. Yeah, I grew up eating poppy seed bagels in New Jersey. <laughs> so, you know, I'm a 13-year-old kid munching down on a poppy well, seed Well, yeah, bagel. people don't even realize that. I mean, peop some people get surprised when they'll test hot for having morphine in their system because they've been eating poppy seeds. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, yeah, um, it, it is interesting because I've grown that and lettuce and wild lettuce. Did you ever make a good salad? Um, well, wild lettuce, so I, I didn't know to eat the young poppies while they were, the leaves while they were young. I would have been, I would have liked to try that. Um, I have grown my own lettuce and you know, you want to eat it when it's young too, <laughs> because it gets bitter. And there's there's this wild lettuce that has it's got a certain subset of alkaloids, perhaps loosely related to the alkaloids and opium. Um, it's not nearly as narcotic, but it is known as a mild narcotic by some people. It's called wild lettuce, and that, I'm pretty sure it grows around here. It grows everywhere. It's just a weed. Most people try to kill it. But all these plants look alike when they germinate and when they 
leaf out. Uh, and even when they start to bloom, they all look and behave the same way. So if we're looking at, uh, you know, agriculture 12,000 years ago, where archaeologically it has been established that opium was incorporated into this, this um, crop package of domesticated plants, they clearly associated it with a food source, likely because it looked like other plants that they were eating that were also food sources. So when did it like become a problem though? When, when did all of this go bad, essentially? Yeah, when did it all go bad? That's a great question. Um, so on my notes here, there are, it was interesting that it's really hard to tell when, before the onset of writing, before the invention of writing, it's hard to tell where it went bad. But after writing, you find it being mentioned um, in Sumeria and Egypt, um, in Hindu texts, uh, and, and texts from around the region. You find it being mentioned first as a medical plant or a food plant, a way to treat certain types of ailments. Um, but as this force of urbanization gets bigger, and as the cities get bigger, and there's more and more people, there's this increase in the social hierarchy, so there's more laws, and there's more laws to control people and influence people. And so there are, I don't have, I might have some exact notes here that I can pull up offhand, but there are several instances of these centralized institutions basically banning them or trying to control them, trying to control the access to them, trying to control who's bringing them in. And so opium seems to be native to the Levant or Asia Minor, what we call Turkey now. It's kind of native to there. It's not really known what plant it originated from in that it's a domesticate and it's sort of been detached from its indigenous sort of heritage, I guess. So to my knowledge, we haven't investigated that yet. But um, yeah, so it's hard to tell from the onset of its domestication, um, and c early farmers brought it into Europe as well, potentially eight to 7,000 years ago. And so before the onset of writing, it's tough to tell what people were doing with it. After writing, you see people coming to terms with what it is and describing it and defining it. But then as you get more kingdoms and human society at that time gets more complex, com complicated. You get more laws and more prohibitions against it. But then I also found there's a lot of finger pointing. Like uh, if you were to ask a British person in the 18th century who brought, who brought opium to the world, they would have blamed the Arabs. And then of course there was the Chinese, the British opium wars against China, where the British basically wanted to dominate the market, the East Asian market, around China and India. And the way that they did that is uh, China wanted to actually ban the importation of opium, and the British leveraged its military to override that, and basically China lost two wars to the British uh, in trying to ban opium. So it was, the idea is it was, it's been used to leverage people for a long time. <laughs> I think it's interesting that all these people are trying to ban something that we've been doing since before we've been able to write. You know what I mean? Like, this is 
an inherent human nature thing. Like, before we even learned how to, like, you know, record our own history, we were doing this. But now it's, you know, thrown into the illegalities and, yeah. you know, it's all controlled very carefully. And I understand why it's controlled very carefully, but at the same time, it's it's crazy how some people are being charged and things like that. Yeah, definitely. I, I just think it's so interesting that now, in the United States, that you can be a gardener and not know and just get to see packets and have them growing and you know these Hungarian blues are beautiful you know and you're enjoying them you don't even know the cost that this plant has leveraged <laughs> on people over time and if you did know that you might be committing a crime at that point right. it's kind of a trip so I found an article and it said yeah. if you're growing like without the intention, without the knowledge, then mm -hmm. it's you're fine. Yeah. So is it at yeah. a is it at a certain stage of bloom, when they can like come in and see that you're, because it says like you have to like razor blade the bulb, and like it's a process, you know. Oh yeah, to harvest the sap. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and yeah. so where where do they is it like a growing is it in a stage where you know a cop might see this and be like that's suspicious, or is it just. You know, where do they, yeah, where do they find that? It's intention? a crate. You said something about the knowledge of it, right? So yeah. let's say you have some book in your house that, you know, has to do with opium producing. That might be incriminating because you have the knowledge of what this plant can do. You have the knowledge of what you're producing. And so that's where it becomes dangerous, essentially. But if you're oblivious to it, if, if you're not paying attention, then you're okay. That, that's what I understood from what you... Yeah, no, that's that's how I took it, too. I mean, isn't that interesting? <laughs> and and the, so the crazy thing for me is that... Okay, so the advice from local gardeners in Texas was for poppies, you cut the poppy straw. So after it blooms, and, the, and like you can see the top of the poppy seed in the middle of the bloom. I mean, not poppy seed, the poppy pod. You can see it right in the middle of the bloom. And so after the bloom fades, the petals fall off, then that center just swells and it gets bigger and bigger. So the idea is after those blooms fall off, you just cut it and trash it, right? So there might be a short little window there where you can cut it and there's no sort of thick seed pod. It's just really premature. Um, if you cut it while the seed pod swells, you're still discarding it. You know, maybe you're not committing a crime, but like, you're still sort of removing this controlled substance from the base of its production and distributing it somewhere. Like to me, I mean, do you know because, like, you, do you know that you have to cut it because of what it is and that if you don't, you might get in trouble? I mean, it's, it's kind of crazy. And then what I also found was that most police couldn't identify it. Even, you know. Oh, they, yeah. They're not, in a garden full of plants, like, there isn't a police officer that, or if there is, like, cool, cool to them, but they're going to know, hey, that they're just, they think that's a garden plant, like. Not to know. mention all the other substances they misidentify and immediately say, oh, this man has heroin. Yeah. You know, you know they do that all the time, like, way more often than people think. Yeah. And, and, yeah, that's a huge problem. Yeah. So, it's an interesting gray area, and, you know, people don't really know about this they hear about the opiate crisis and everything going on with that i wonder how much could be alleviated if people could grow it well i have an article here in may of 2017 the south carolina man was arrested because he had an acre 
of opium growing. Wow. So, <laughs> that's where it's like, okay, this isn't just a normal, yeah. you know, garden. Yeah. And so he had that, but that was, it was May, and it was the only second bus of that year. And so really? it's rare for opium to be grown for, you know, mass production. And a big reason for that is how easy it is to just order it. Oh, really? And because it's very labor-intensive, apparently. Well, yeah. So, producing anything from a plant can be pretty labor-intensive, especially uh, if you're starting from scratch, you know what I mean? And so, especially for opium, you have to learn a whole process and a whole way of doing things. And if you're even going to go farther than that to make heroin, there's, like, dimorphine and all these other different analogs that you can go about making, but you have to have the knowledge to do that. So that, like, most of the time when things get legalized, it's not the people, like, that are profiting off it. It's not that everyone has a weed plant in their backyard. It's that there are a few companies that are making millions off their ability to start doing this. And, I mean, that's kind of the way it is right now with the pharmaceutical industry, is you have these companies that are making millions of dollars off these opiates, and they're the only ones who are allowed to be presenting it to society. I forget his name. David, I think, they came. he came to the meetings. Remember he asked... He asked during group one day, where is, like, opium produced in the United States, right? You right. remember that? Yeah. Um, well, I found an article, and there's this place in Vermont, and their opium, they have, like a, like, a farm. Like, they're allowed to grow it, and it graded at the same level of Turkish, Turkish opium. And so, like, it is made in the United States, but mm. it's just harder to get as pure, I guess, and so because of the climate. But apparently Texas is a good climate for that. Yeah. Oh, it, it likes hot, dry conditions. Yeah. So. It thrives in that. Yeah, so one of the articles that I read said that the UN Council on Drug Control license, basically licensed only five nations to manufacture it. And so it said India, now this article is written in like maybe t 2012. No, this was this was written in 1998, but um, I can look at it if I need to. Um, but yeah, it said that India controlled like 60%, like was responsible for 60% of legal opiate production. Hmm. Um, and so I would imagine the U.S. would be the second nation in that five. That makes me wonder about China and if they are allowed to or not, because... Yeah. It, it would make a lot more sense if they weren't allowed to produce their own morphine. I, I don't know what their schedule, how they would go with the EU event or anything like that. But if they weren't allowed to produce that, it would make a lot more sense why that we have so much more research chemicals and the, the weird analogs coming yeah, out of true. China. Well, they see, China is interesting because, you know, I kind of touched on the British opium wars, but... The British really sought to screw the Chinese over back then. This is like, uh, what is this, like mid-19th century, I think. Um, and, and they did. They won, they won both of those wars for essentially naval and trade superiority. Uh, and then they imposed these really brutal sanctions on them as, uh, by basically turning over their land and their power structure to other nations and other rich financial interests. So really coming into the 20th century, the Chinese had been beaten up by colonial powers and then were beaten up by the Japanese. 
and a lot of that I think might they might point to the opium wars as sort of the root of all of that, sort of being the doorstep to the rest of the world. And so, I don't know if, if that's true. And that, and I came from a country through that. Then yeah, I'd want to, I want revenge on, yeah, on the other powers let's of the take world. Take the power like, back, yeah. you know. Let's start producing all these crazy chemicals and making yeah. and flood their markets. Right. Yeah. And I mean that is kind of what we're seeing right now. I mean. They're making all these strange, really strong opiate analogs, like ohm fentanyl. And I, I don't even know if there are people who have ingested ohm fentanyl just because of how powerful it is. And, and that's insane to think about, is something so powerful that no one's even thought to ingest it or can dilute it to the point where it's safe. Yeah. And, and so that's just, that, that's where it becomes weaponized. And I feel like that's a lot of what you're talking about, with like what the British did. They were yeah. weaponizing it. Yeah. And I, I'm not saying that China is necessarily trying to weaponize their opiates against us, but at the same time, it's a, a side effect of them trying to profit off of it. Uh, I'm glad you brought up India. Like you said, you know, we're we're cracking down on China. You know, like pretty, oh, yeah. pretty hard. Like even China's cracking down on their own, on their own people, if you will. But from what I read, like all their legislature and stuff comes from Beijing, but then they let the states control it, and so then the police incentivize. Like, all right, I'm gonna let this fentanyl operation go. You know, mm. so it's kind of like a bit of corruption in that. Yeah. You know, our our country is telling us this, but the money's there, and so we'll turn a blind eye. Our, the neighborhoods need it, and no. and that's a totally other thing that, especially, is happening in impoverished countries. Is like, the, you know, you can get American dollars and a lot of them by doing something that's risking your life, and no. people do that all the time. But the the scary thing is, you know, we can break down on China. But you mentioned India. It literally says that um, even if China successfully cuts down on, on fentanyl, the analog, it is likely another hub of synthetic opioid production will pop up, and that place is most likely India for, for number one, mm-hmm. since, especially since their license. Mm-hmm. And so it's just crazy to think about, like, you know, if we're going to keep cracking down on all these people, and it's just going to move and move until... Right, and, and the reason we're getting these super dangerous chemicals is because of prohibition. You know, if if somebody could just go get a morphine prescription at the store, they wouldn't want to buy the scary own fentanyl analog from China that they can dilute a million times to keep them well. You know what I mean? They would have... And that's that's the whole issue with methadone right now as well, is because it's just another substitute for... it. it it's doing the same job, essentially. Mm-hmm. The black market drive, right? The black market drive. You can look at prohibition, right? And so these fentanyl analogs came out of, you know, crackdown on heroin. And so what China did was like, okay, fine, we won't produce heroin. We'll make an analog and then sell it as that. And that's how they got past, you know, the laws, if you will. And that's why we have fentanyls because, you know, we're going to make something else. And it's going to be similar and then we can get away with it. Fentanyl used to be a prescription drug in the United States. You could you could walk home with your prescription. There were fentanyl patches. So you, like I remember like heroin addicts that I knew that um, they would go and they'd take their fentanyl patches and they'd cut them up into a bunch of little pieces and you know they they were 
powerful. They were incredibly powerful. And what was happening to a lot of these people who were getting fentanyl strips for, you know, let's say you have back surgery, they'll give you a fentanyl patch. And um, a lot of these people would come out of it and end up addicted to heroin at the end of it because the fentanyl was so powerful. And so now they only administer fentanyl, administer fentanyl in hospitals and stuff like that. Um, but no, I, I remember like whenever fentanyl was legal in the United States and you know it was just like uh oxycontin is you know people would go to the pres go to the script or go to the um go to the doctor get a script get their fentanyl and walk out the door and it was it wasn't necessarily good yeah oh, I can imagine. so in in keeping with the question that she asked about like the danger of prohibition, how would how do you think this would be affected if okay if you say you have an addiction to opiates and you had the option of go, stepping into your backyard and plucking something that may not be nearly as potent or toxic as the refined drug but would still alleviate the condition that you're trying to use it for. I feel like for a lot of people it's sustainability. You know, at a, after a few months of opiate addiction, it's not like it's fun anymore. You yeah. know, people are more getting well. And once people are seriously... It messes with your reward system. You, you'll have just like instant reward. It, and it like... It messes with you for years and years afterwards. And that's why a lot of people get trapped in the cycle of just instant reward. Um, and so I feel like that would just help the sustainability of it. You know what I mean? The people who did have problems, they could have their fields and they could dry their poppies or whatever, however they choose to do it over the course of time. It wouldn't be like, you know, pe people are scared of overdoses too, you know. Yeah. They're not rushing to, you know, seek higher, you know. They're more just trying to survive at a certain point. Yeah, I've often thought about that because, you know, 12,000 years ago when you're raising your domesticated rye and maybe some domesticated beans and you've got some domesticated goats out there and then there's your domesticated poppies, like, I mean, those people were making it happen. I mean, that crop package, you know, maybe other people came in, but they carried that crop package into Europe. So... People were making it happen, even having access to all of that. But they also saw the value in it. Like, today, we see the value in it, but we also disgrace the hell out of it. You know what I mean? And I feel like that is not the way. It should be respected, but it shouldn't be disgraced. We shouldn't be going out and shaming the addicts, but yeah. we should be, you know, trying to understand and trying to be more helpful. Yeah, right on. That comes, up, comes back to the... We need a modern shaman. <laughs> Anthony, do you have any comments on legality of him? Or not, uh, punishment versus rehab? <laughs> yeah, and so, an interesting study, um, they, they found the likelihood of, of opioid, you know, addicts. Once they're put into the system, it's the, the likelihood of re-arrest re is, is over 60% for most. Wow. And then you got to remember, going into the, you know, the public criminal system, the criminal justice system, if you will, 
you know, half half of all people that are incarcerated meet some type of diagnosis on the DSM-5 skill, or in other words, like a mental illness skill. And so it, it just goes to show that, you know, punishment over recovery isn't doing anything and it isn't doing anything for anyone because you know they get incarcerated and they have um you know these withdrawals and you know it's not healthy for them you know like they're suffering but they have programs that give you know methadone which i know you mentioned they, they give methadone to these people and they're actually they're finding that you know they're being able to like you know while they're detoxing involuntarily if they get this methadone it's helping them as they get out there and these programs are you know they're shit on by like everyone so for example like the safe needle injection site you know no one no one wants to support that you know that's my my money why am i helping these people but at the same time you know if we can help people that are already going through hell you know just give them methadone so they can wean off of it you know we're and see we're hiding the problem with methadone though we have methadone clinics all over the united states and people go in regularly, weekly, for their shots, or not even for their shots, but for their medication, you know what I mean? So, and the withdrawals from methadone are worse than the withdrawals from heroin. They're longer, they, they're more uncomfortable, but suddenly you're government assistant, you know what I mean? So, rather than being able to grow your own poppies in your backyard, well now you have to stand down in line at the methadone clinic on every Saturday to get your methadone to make sure you can go to work every day this week so you don't feel like hell. And so they're essentially just taking this opiate crisis and turning it into their own... They're not profiting off it very much, but they're still profiting off it, and they're also disguising it by saying, oh, these addicts are treated now, they're getting well, they're in the program, but at the same time, it's just a continuation of the same opiate habits. And so that's why I disagree with, like, methadone. Yeah, I mean, if in my opinion, if you're a heroin addict, you should go through the heavy, painful withdrawals rather than try and go through a methadone uh regimen because the methadone regimen is going to last longer it's going to be less pleasant you're also going to have it's government aid it's it's not like you're sitting in some sketchy parking lot waiting for some sketchy dude that you don't want to deal with there's a government office that you go walk to and go get your prescription and and that's that's like the benefit for methadone for a lot of people and and that's why i think methadone is the last last resort if you've tried kicking heroin multiple times if you've like if you do not feel like you can keep living the life especially with all the analogs and sketchy things that are going on methadone is a good option because it it will sustain you for the rest of you can go and work a job again you can go be a normal person but at the end of the day you're still using your prescription yeah and it's crazy that that's that's legal and that's that, that's our go-to. You know, you look at something like ibogaine, and you know, just recently. Well, I mean, I'm sure for a long time, you know, people have known what this plant does, but the benefits it shows for opioid addicts is like really positive, and it's completely illegal. But methadone, you know, like we're making money, and you know, you come back, you know, week by week. You know, when, when this, there's, 
it just brings back into the prohibition and how it's not not working for the betterment of society. So, I I knew quite a few addicts in around 2012, right? One of my friends got put on methadone in 2013, and he ha he's still on methadone today, in 2019, and it's just that that's what I'm saying. It's it's a replacement. It's not a solution. Yeah. That that's six years of ra rather than being a heroin addict and you know fighting fighting for money and fighting for all that kind of stuff. Now it's just government subsidized and he he goes and he gets his medication. If there happened to be, say, somebody addicted to opiates that is listening to this program, what would your advice to them be? Do you have any? I mean, honestly, your best advice is probably to get get with a therapist, get with someone you know closely that you can spend time kicking and, you know, rebuilding. Because unlike benzos, unlike alcohol, heroin addiction won't kill you when you're withdrawing. It'll just feel like hell. So, I mean, two or three weeks of recovery time is enough to get you back on your feet enough and looking well enough to start trying to build again, you know, and and after that it's more of the long-term like the long-term fight with like staying away because then there as I said earlier there's this damage that happens with your reward system you suddenly are rewarded just like that just quick and um and that's not how most normal people function it's like we have highs we have lows we'll feel angry we'll feel that that gets taken away from you in a lot of senses thank you for listening to episode one part one of the psychedelic club podcast in part two we will be discussing drug prohibition the war on drugs and opium addiction the music for this podcast is brought to you by Flower Monkey and One Versus Zero.